market insight and analysis. You're listening to the opening bell of CNBC's Squawk on the Street. Good Thursday morning. Welcome to Squawk on the Street. I'm Carl Quintanilla with Morgan Brennan and Mike Santoli. Jim Cramer, David Faber have the morning off. Futures go red as those hopes for a cool CPI print uh, get dashed. Six-tenths on headline and core yields pop, but the month-on-month gain does decelerate from December. For now, the 10-year yield is staying below two. Our roadmap begins with rising pressure for the Fed. Inflation hits that fresh four-decade high and increases the likelihood of substantial rate hikes this year. And the return of some Disney magic. It's park business roaring back and streaming subs delivering better than expected results for Disney+. And Congress eyeing stock trading restrictions. Former SEC Chair Jay Clayton joins us to discuss that issue, Carl. We're going to start with the markets, of course, and the reaction to the new CPI data. A lot to dig into here, uh, but both headline and core run a bit hot. Markets now pricing in closer to six hikes rather than five this year. Yes, uh, market coming into today was leaning at least lightly in the direction that maybe there would be a pleasant surprise, meaning a slightly downside uh, to the consensus. Did not happen across the board. Core higher than expected, uh, obviously headline higher than expected. So it did reprice uh, Fed intentions, something close to maybe a 50-50 for a half percentage point increase in the March meeting. Um, We were talking earlier this week that if after this report you're in the 50 percent range, Fed's probably got to come out and lean one way or the other rhetorically and say, yeah, that sounds reasonable or, you know, talk it down and it's a quarter point. What's interesting to me is the market, uh, you know, is basically just kind of handing back yesterday's rally at this pre-open level. Uh, It's not really panicking about this. It's a little bit of a uh, we got into a neutral spot. Uh, S&P 500 at a one-week high, right by the 50-day the average. Let's see if we get lucky now uh, with CPI. It didn't happen. Two-year note, racing higher on yield. And, uh, you know, that's where, that's where we sit, Morgan, as we also hear from lots of companies that are just building in assumptions for continued uh, price challenges the rest of this year. Yeah, I'm, I'm, every day it's more companies saying that they are battling inflation, that the inflation is going to continue this year, and wherever possible, if they have that pricing power, if they have that brand strength, they're going to push it out to consumers. Coca-Cola this morning, Pepsi this morning, uh, Unilever talking about it this morning. There's just a, a, a huge and growing list around this. And, of course, those are just some of the companies that are Disney, which continued to see strength despite the fact that it was raising prices across many of its different segments. Um, But on the flip side, you have other companies that are still struggling with some of these higher costs that maybe don't have as much pricing power in the marketplace or maybe aren't consumer-facing and are going to have to absorb some of those costs. I mean, this is... Inflation is something that is affecting every corner of the economy right now. We're going to be speaking to the CEO of Huntington Ingalls Industries in the next hour. And you're even seeing it affect margins, supply chain issues affect margins where national security is concerned. Nonetheless, Mike, to a point you just made, we've had a number of Fed officials in the last couple of days, Bostic, Mester, uh, basically tamp down or at least try and calm some of those greatest aggressive hiking fears that are playing out in the market right now, where the number of rate increases, uh, how large those rate increases could be, are concerned too. So it does seem like the Fed is continuing to walk a very tight rope here. Well, yeah, especially given the fact that there's still five weeks to the next meeting. There's still another CPI report to come before we get to that meeting. Mm -hmm. And, um, you know, it it seems as if there's still a lot of play. So the market is going to have to uh, sort this out on some level 
on its own. Uh, and, you know, it remains the case that it's not like the debate's over because we knew that January and February were going to be these months where very, very low inflation readings last year were going to make the comparisons look pretty uh, eye-popping in terms of the percentage gains annually. And we'll still get the, the, the February number. Interestingly, long-term yields, while they're going up in the 10 years, you know, 198, close to 2%, Still going up slower there than short-term rates. So that says the market is, is saying, look, whatever the Fed has to do, it'll probably work uh, in terms of restraining inflation. And uh, at least for now, it doesn't seem like it'll completely undermine growth. Final point on the companies is the market continues to reward companies that persuasively say they can push pricing power, prices uh, higher. Uh, to their customers. And that tells you the dynamic has flipped a little bit. No longer are they talking about, you know, efficiencies on the cost side and productivity. It's a lot more about, uh, you know, basically being able to keep traction with customers as you uh, put prices up. Yeah. Well, the cost-saving programs take time. Yeah, that was certainly the word from Clorox last week, uh, that normally that's something you can institute in 12 to 18 months. Right. Maybe it takes longer this time because of how dramatic the ramp up in inflation has been. Uh, Mike mentions the two, the 10-year uh, now officially at 2%. Yeah. There mm-hmm. was some chatter that once you got past 195, it was almost a fait accompli the way some technical aspects work. It, it probably did give way. That was a bit of a uh, perceived ceiling. Also, though, fascinating. Yesterday, a 10-year Treasury auction was much better than expected. A lot more demand right close to 1.9. You know, so it's it sort of shows you that at some point uh, there will be a little bit of, uh, of of a damper on this move. But you know, we, we don't know where it is. Uh, I don't think there's a magic level that all of a sudden the market panics about. Uh, it's going up in this kind of lockstep way uh, across the curve. And so, you know, it'll, it'll take, uh, take some sorting through. I do think a lot of people are already very short bonds, but people haven't really flat. I'm more interested mm-hmm. in corporate debt. Let's see how corporate yields react to all this. Now, obviously, they'll go up, but if spreads can stay tight, you can manage this. If not, if there's a real outflow issue with with corporate debt, that filters into equity valuations. Credit will be uh, key to watch. And then, as Bill Miller told uh, Kelly yesterday on the exchange, not so much about the print in his view, but about what it happens to inflation expectations. Here's what Miller said yesterday. I don't think the headline inflation numbers mean much at all. It's the inflation expectations. And the 30-year isn't telling you that there's any real worry there. Where the tips are isn't telling you there's real worry there. Again, those prices could be wrong. But I'm looking at inflation expectations and not at headline numbers. So if you look at 12 months, if you look at five years, um, I guess guess the doves can take some heart in it for now. For sure. I mean, it, it, it's absolutely true that the market-based inflation expectations have moderated from their highs uh, recently. And again, is that because they think the Fed's going to have to do enough to really slow, slow the economy down? Uh, or it's just they can walk this line. We have a good enough uh, bit of momentum in terms of uh, nominal growth. Uh, you know, Morgan, we have good consumer and corporate balance sheets. It's not as if we're, we're really at stall speed on the economy uh, that, you know, we can actually navigate this path. Yeah. I mean, look, nobody thinks that you speak to that pays attention to the market or pays attention to the economy, thinks that inflation stays at these crazy elevated levels. The key question, going back to this you know, point around expectations, is what does it come down to? Where does it settle in the coming months and coming years? And of course, that's where so much of this debate, uh, to, Bill, to Bill Miller's point, um, is, is kind of centered. But we are starting to see areas of inflation that are pushing out that we didn't see before. So case in point this morning, the fact that you had motor vehicle insurance up 4%, more than 4% year on year. And you had an, you had reports, I believe it was the Wall Street Journal just last night, saying that 
Some car insurers are raising rates anywhere from 6% to double-digit increases as they are seeing those higher costs. They are seeing more people begin to hit the road, have accidents, et cetera. I mean, we talked about it yesterday with housing, too. Okay, so we've got 2% on the 10-year yield. We've got mortgage rates climbing back to pre-pandemic highs. Uh, you know, how is that going to ripple out, especially when you're talking about housing and it's a lag effect in the CPI? How is that going to ripple out, too, to something like services, even as you see the good side of the equation come down? And how is that going to affect consumers? I keep coming back to that point, and I realize the bond market is telling the story it's telling, and the tips is telling the story it's telling. But consumers, to me, it seems to be our, our key to this equation, given the fact that we keep hearing from so many companies, Carl, about how strong consumers are, about how they're able to absorb these prices, but for how long? Yeah, I mean, we were doing uh, nine-tenths uh, in last year, so uh, right. the, the argument that six-tenths is, uh, is a deceleration will... It'll and average hourly earnings were up uh, seven-tenths, mm-hmm. uh, you know, so, it, so it, there's a little bit of an offset there. Also, if you talk about consumer surveys about inflation, just tell me what gas prices are. It's almost one for one. That's what happens. Until uh, we all own electric vehicles. Yeah, exactly. So for now, it's the price you see multiple times anywhere you drive. And it's, you know, we'll see if it rolls over or not. But it looks like it's coming yeah. in off the boil. Meanwhile, futures here, uh, session low. Disney's up in the pre-market, or at least it was. The company posts a quarterly beat, helped by the rebound at parks and the addition of about 12 million Disney Plus subscribers. Yesterday on Closing Bell, Bob Chapek told our Julia Borston that he is optimistic about subs growth. We're reaffirming our guidance of 230 to 260 as we gave last December. That's been our target, that continues to be our target, and really what's driving is what we've said, great content. We'll have more franchise added content on our big franchises added this fiscal year, double what we had in 21. Uh, fascinating quarter. Uh, ESPN, 21.3 Street was looking for less than 19 million uh, subs. Today, Moffitt says the the execution of parks, in their words, was sterling. Absolutely. Just the sheer operating leverage, benefiting from both volume and price. They said the biggest surprise, though, was the drop in RPU at Hulu. And it's right. going to be interesting to see whether that is a proxy for the overall SVOD market. Yeah, and now they tried to kind of, you know, bundle some things together with Hulu, and maybe it helped subs uh, on some level. I think that was a maybe uh, slightly pleasant surprise on the streaming side. Uh, you had better numbers. Things seemed to be on track there. No real window to when the losses stopped. I think the park story, though, 100% was the real takeaway here, is the, the pricing power, the fact that operating income in parks was well above pre-pandemic levels. Mm. It's been the big hole in the entire income statement for Disney for two years. Uh, and it's now, if that's coming back at these levels, all of a sudden, the stock looks a lot less expensive because it had really started to look expensive even after this decline. Uh, and so that's an interesting you know, element of it. And that's pricing power, Morgan, in part, because you're getting people to pay yes. these premium levels for you know, faster access and privileged uh, you know, kind of access in the parks. Yeah, and people are paying it. And what's amazing is they haven't even seen the return of international travelers yet, which pre-pandemic were something like, just for the domestic parts here, were something like 20% of overall attendance. So to your point, you're seeing more profitability, but fewer guests attending. What does that look like as you continue to see those reopenings ramp up? And of course, that then helps to subsidize everything we're seeing play out with streaming. I mean, it's incredible. Between Hulu, ESPN Plus, and Disney Plus, uh, you're talking about, what, almost 200 million subscribers now? 
Netflix has 222 million subscribers. It's a lever it can pull because it is a diversified business, Carl, uh, unlike the Netflixes of the world. Um, so we'll see how that continues to, or Mike, so we'll see how that continues to shake out. Yeah, we absolutely will. And let's talk a little bit more about it here to discuss more on Disney's earnings from the parks to streaming and all the rest. We're joined by Cowan analyst Doug Kreutz. Uh, Doug, good to see you this morning. You heard us uh, chatting about the main drivers of the quarter. Uh, what's your, your sort of top line on it all? Yeah, I think you guys hit the nail on the head. The parks results were, were pretty remarkable. Um, I, I think investors had been capitalizing a full recovery at the parks into the stock price before last night. But I think what we learned is that a full recovery at the parks looks a lot better than what we thought. Um, if pre-pandemic domestic margins sort of topped out in the 25% range, I think if you look at what they did this quarter and then project that forward to you know, full parks capacity, you could see something at 30% plus EBITDA margins at the parks, and that would be uh, a tremendous lift for the overall business. Yeah, you still, you did raise your price target from 126 to 132, clearly below uh, where we are right now. Uh, as certainly at the opening levels. What keeps you skeptical? Uh, is, it, is it the rest, uh, the, the execution on the streaming side? Yeah, it's, it's, their, it's their media business as a whole. Look, getting to 200 million plus subs, as you mentioned, is impressive, and yet they're still losing billions of dollars. If there are any other businesses on the planet that have 200 million subs and are losing money, I'm not aware of them. Um, they said they'll be break even in 24, but break even doesn't mean massive profit margins. It means you know, moderate profitability. In the meantime, the linear business is still bleeding out. Um, so we're, we're more skeptical on the ultimate profitability of sort of the media business as a whole streaming plus linear, plus the theatrical window, which is also continuing to hurt, uh, than I think the market is. How about ESPN? I mean, before Disney launched its streaming platform, its Disney Plus platform, that was so much of the focus for investors. It seemed like Chapek, Bob Chapek and the rest of his team really talked up the opportunities around ESPN uh, and sports betting as well, kind of dampening any kind of speculation that we could see a spinoff. Yeah, look, the sports business still generates a, a lot of cash flow for Disney. Um, they really have the only sports business and media that does that. Most, most sports media businesses run it break even or close to it because the, the leagues extract the majority of the value. I think Disney sports business is being pushed in that direction um, over time, but it's still a big free cash flow generator that can be used to fund other things to the company. And so I really don't think there's much chance of them spinning it off in the near future. What is the read through from Disney to some of the other streaming players that are considered more traditional media. I mean, we know the landscape's gotten so competitive. Is it really kind of Disney and Netflix and then everything else? Or is this a template that we can use to assess other companies? Well, I don't know that there's a lot of read through. I mean, obviously Netflix had a, had a soft quarter. Disney had a good quarter. You know, HBO and Peacock already reported and their quarters were, you know, I think, okay. Um, we still have a few to go. You know. It's Netflix, Disney, you have Amazon in there. I don't think HBO will be going to Discovery soon. That, that entity isn't going away. Viacom, CBS is still a player. Comcast isn't going anywhere. So you've got six very well-funded players in this, in this segment uh, with, without any real visibility on when the increases in spending on content are going to slow down. You know, Netflix has sort of indicated they want to get into the video game business now. So we're opening up a a second front in this war, and you know what they say about two front wars. <laughs>
Hey, Doug, uh, you know, some on the street this morning uh, are saying, look, the, the print is, is, is really good, and the, we've mentioned the parks, but it is that re-rating of Netflix that does aff affect uh, Disney's valuation, and, and I think Moffitt this morning says they're in a valuation chasm. Uh, how much did that Netflix uh, guidance hurt the overall sector? I mean, I think after seeing Disney's results, people may conclude that Netflix's issues are Netflix's issues more than sectoral issues, and that, that could actually help media a bit. Um, but yeah, look, Disney's been getting a big premium to its peers in, in part because it's Disney and in part because people felt like they had a better chance of sort of coming out the back end of this with a very profitable streaming business as opposed to, you know, maybe say Viacom, CBS or Discovery. Um, but the spending keeps going up. And I think there's going to be a point at which people go, go from, okay, the business will eventually be profitable to saying, okay, how profitable is the business going to be? Because, you know, you're putting multiples now on sort of current level earnings that are that are very depressed. But if you start to think about well, what are earnings look like in fiscal 26, if the multiple still looks high, it becomes harder to sustain that. Yeah. Uh, yeah, it's absolutely still uh, still a battleground on that front, Doug. Thanks very much. Appreciate it. Yep. Thank you. When we come back this morning, a lot more on the earnings front. We'll get market reaction to results from Uber and Twitter, along with Pepsi, Coke, Kellogg, Twilio, Datadog, Mattel, uh, Sonos. There's a ton. Take a look at futures here. Again, the 10-year does get to 2%, although Disney's going to help the Dow out a little bit uh, to the tune of about 60 points at the open. to squawk on the street. Futures are lower right now, but a pair of tech companies in the earnings spotlight. We start with Uber, up sharply after posting better than expected quarterly results, helped by a rebound in ride sharing and strength in its Uber Eats delivery business. Uh, you can see their shares are about 3.5% right now. CEO Dara Kajwashahi will be a guest on Squawk Box tomorrow morning. Meantime, Twitter missing on the top and bottom lines. The company announcing a new $4 billion stock buyback program. The stock is now trading about flat. Carl. Um, but Uber in particular kind of got my attention. Second profitable quarter as a public, public company. And part of what helped propel those results was, uh, was investments in other ride sharing and tech companies, which in some ways Uber's results over the last couple of quarters have swung very dramatically based on how those investments have been going. Yeah, Street definitely giving Uber uh, the benefit of the doubt, even though they guide a bit below on uh, Q1 bookings. Twitter is the fascinating story because the metrics, uh, really nothing is spectacular, no. but you buy back $4 billion of stock, that's 13% of market Exactly. Cap. On a $30 billion market cap, half of it's going to be accelerated. They have the, you know, the cash to do it. Um, but expense growth really just run away. I think that's another piece of the story. I mean, they more or less hit top line targets in terms of guidance. Uh, but, you know, people are wondering about the productivity of those investments. They'd rather the, the company just buy back, you know, a bunch of stock, especially with it down, you know, so much from its highs. So um, not a lot to, to really carry forward in terms of what's next in terms of, you know, audience expansion and ad engagement. It's a, it's a little bit of a work in progress. They keep pointing toward the 2023 goals Which they on keep. those fronts. Yeah. Yes, exactly. The, the long-term target that many on the street have said needs to come in. Yeah. Uh, and by the way, we haven't really mentioned the last couple of days some rather aggressive selling of Twitter uh, over at Arc. Mm. Yes. Yeah, it's a little bit mm -hmm. of a give up uh, on that front. Of course, Arc is, you know, they're buying one, they're selling one thing to buy another for the most part. But yeah, it doesn't seem as if, um, you know, anything that's going on right now is feels disruptive, right? I mean, it's disruptive tech. Uh, if you go back to like 2012, I know this is a 
maybe unfair comparison, but you know, Twitter revenue up like 10 times, Facebook up 20 times. I mean, that's just, you know, and the, the market caps are about that ratio now too, 20 to 10. So, um, you know, it's, it's, it's certainly something that uh, people are going to like the financial engineering in this case, you know, because in the absence of, of a clear path toward operating, uh, you know, kind of a, you know, real step function change, that's what we have. Yeah. Uh, corporate earnings, of course, may take a back seat to the overall macro picture today. If you missed it, uh, CPI for January up 7.5 year on year on headline. That's going to take you all the way back to 1982. And it looks like, according to futures, we're going to give back some of the 2% gain the S&P has had over the last two sessions. We mentioned uh, CPI. Obviously, that's the reason futures are in the red. But at the same time, claims come in, 223,000. Uh, we're watching the 10-year, which does just barely uh, kiss 2%, and the two-year got to 145. Opening bell coming up in five minutes. Twilio surging in the pre-market. The communication software provider posting a narrower-than-expected quarterly loss and a revenue beat. Guidance also ahead uh, on revenue. Uh, EPS loss, they do see a bit of a wider loss than the street expects. The, the valuation picture on some of these software-as-a-service names yeah. is cloudy right now. Absolutely. <laughs> uh, without a doubt. And in fact, they, it's traded very close to that group of younger cloud stocks that, uh, that we've tracked. Um, you know, down by 55% or something going into yesterday's close from its peak. Uh, so obviously reassurance on the on the revenue line. Let's lift the let's lift the short bets and maybe give it a little bit of credit. But it is a big question, uh, Morgan, in terms of exactly whether there's going to be a salvage operation in that tier of uh, of technology as uh, even the you know, the, the NASDAQ 100 itself is, you know, 10 percent, 12 percent off its highs. Yeah, totally. I mean, just given the fact that we were talking about it a few minutes ago, you know, a 10 year, a 10 year yield that was hitting 2 percent, um, you know, going back to 2019 and sort of that push pull between the macro dynam dynamics and currents of the market, Mike. And of course, these companies specific, how they're weathering uh, opportunities as well. And at what point do investors start to see value in some of these growth plays that have been hit so hard? Yeah, um, obviously the uh, you know the, the yield story has been part of that. It's obviously not determined the entire move in tech, uh, yeah. but right now it's, it's Nasdaq's also been the weaker index. I mean, in terms of how deep it declined, uh, the strength of its comeback, and it hasn't necessarily proven as much. If you look at the equal weighted S and P, actually, uh, the average S and P stock's doing much better. Got a pretty busy floor here uh, this morning. Nice yep. to see as we get the opening bell and the CNBC real time exchange here at the big board. It is Black Rifle Coffee Company celebrating its listing via SPAC at the NASDAQ Hardcore Enterprises, a software development company celebrating its IPO. Anytime you mention coffee these days, you got to talk about input costs because coffee futures. Absolutely. Seven year high, maybe? Yes, coffee futures. Actually, kind of an amazing chart. It looks great. A lot of the uh, ad commodities are doing very well. Uh, if you're looking for, you know, kind of pockets of strength, fertilizer stocks breaking out. Um, we talked about just the general agricultural futures, deer, uh, and Agco had good numbers this week. So, look, there's pockets of the economy that are built for uh, inflation and scarcity, and that's that's kind of what we're seeing there. Yeah, uh, mm -hmm. Coke's a great example of that. Uh, 45 cents does beat by uh, four cents. Organic up nine. You know, some of these organic numbers on consumer products companies are just amazing. We haven't seen numbers like this in a while. Uh, yeah. A lot of that um, was uh, was volume and price, but they do guide a touch light. Yeah. Um, 2022 commodity price inflation 
expect mid-single digit percentage headwind. And yeah, I for mean, a company that knows how to work in an environment like this. Yes, I mean, they're, they, they serially, like, in a normal year, are going to try to get a little bit of pricing through. Uh, it was a definite effect of a kind of a reopening effect. People with in-person events uh, helped the volume numbers for Coke. Uh, and yeah, the guy definitely is a little bit squishy. Um, I would point out too, the dividend yield uh, on Coke down to two and three quarters percent, obviously a nice premium to the S&P, but it's pretty much the low end of its range over the last 10 years. So that's kind of one fewer reason, I think, to, uh, to kind of rush in on this number. Uh, meanwhile, uh, in a similar vein there, Morgan, uh, Pepsi beats mm -hmm. by a penny. Again, organic up almost 12. Um, they guide 2022 organic revenue about six yep. streets at 5.5. Five. And, of course, Pepsi's in for a big weekend uh, in Los Angeles with the Pepsi halftime show at the Super Bowl. Yes, and I do believe that you will be there in person come tomorrow to talk even more about it. Um, so that's a nice little, uh, I guess, teaser right there. But yes, to your point, I mean, Pepsi and Coca-Cola, very similar dynamics playing out there. Uh, in terms of Pepsi, the fact that they've raised prices on sodas and snacks in the fall and the winter of last year. They're now planning more increases this year. We can talk about food inflation and what we've seen in ag commodities, but also, I mean, aluminum's at multi-year highs too, and you've seen that propel stocks like Alcoa as well. So, so we're seeing some of those inflationary pressures in, in a number of different uh, materials lines too. Um, guys, I would just, in terms of, I guess, other, if you want to call them commodities, something else I'm keeping an eye on, uh, has been the psychedelics and also cannabis. So you have Kathy Wood with Arc Genomic buying a Thai Life Sciences. This was uh, this did jump this week. I think it was up something like 12 percent before the opening bell today. You're seeing MindMed and Compass Pathways jump higher as well. We're seeing st similarly strong moves in cannabis too. But keep in mind these are very beat down, beaten down stocks with some of them something like 80 percent still off of their 52-week highs. When we talk about the metaverse, I mean these are kind of the original metaverse, some of these uh, <laughs> materials that these stocks are comprised of, Mike. Yeah, your, your own individual metaverse, I guess, is uh, that's, the, that's the, the path in uh, to those. I would point out, um, obviously, with this rates move that we're seeing, uh, bank stocks are getting bid. So you do have that kind of classic uh, dynamic there. Bank of America up 1.4 percent, basically uh, also at, a, at an all-time high. Mm -hmm. uh, J.P. Morgan as well uh, up uh, only about a third of a percent. So you have the more rate-sensitive banks kind of coming in uh, and taking up a little bit of the slack of these losses. And then for the S&P as a whole, you know, essentially we are just, uh, you know, not quite giving back uh, yesterday's game. So it's it's a little bit of a yes, this uh, CPI was a downside surprise relative to a little bit of the hopeful stance that we had coming into today, but not out of the realm. And I, I, I think even though it's going to sound like it's a little bit of a, uh, you know, uh, kind of a tired line, we probably have peaked in terms of the upward force of the monthly inflation numbers. And I think that there's still some confidence in the market that in the coming months, <laughs> it's going to go in that direction. Come, come hell or high water. Well, right. it, you whether know, that's better exactly. supply chain, better labor force, whether it's just math. Or just slowing, right? It's just the math. Right. I mean, some, to some degree, there's going to be a statistical restraint to it. And all those things you mentioned. And the, and, and the idea, by the way, that uh, we're not really seeing as much in the way of product shortages. Uh, and they've rebuilt the semiconductor pipeline to some degree. So all those things you know, yeah. seem like they should be a little bit net friendly relative to the worst fears. Mm. And it, I mean, it does. And it also I mean, the mass adoption and pull forward we've seen in terms of tech investments and the digitization of everything as well. I know this has been some of the bullish thesis 
theses uh, around certain analysts' calls with retailers, for example, um, that you start to see some of these cost pressures come off. And even if you do have a consumer that's starting to wane a little bit, uh, margins potentially stay in place for some of those companies that have ex executed so well. And of course, you could see that carry through to other industries too. Um, reopening continue to be continues to be in focus, Carl. You had MGM results after the bell last night too. Vegas is coming back. The stock's under uh, a little bit of pressure again this morning. It also returned to profitability. Um, they did see some cancellations, some softness in January, but they think that's going to be short-term limited impact beyond March. So very similar commentary, actually, to what we've heard from some of the passenger airlines. And it had been or has been, at least up until today, a pretty strong week for some of those recovery names, whether it is airlines or an MGM or cruise ship stocks, which continue to just be so hammered by all these different COVID variants. Yeah, although, I mean, to your point, Morgan, uh, take a look at Royal Caribbean, awfully close to a three or four month high. Today's hmm. city initiates a buy on RCL. What else do they initiate buys on today? Six? Fun yeah. uh, as theme parks. Clearly, there's going to be some halo effect uh, to the news out of Disney's uh, yeah. park metrics. Without a doubt. Yeah. I mean, just in terms of the park metrics, the, the, the just general travel bookings are going in the in the right direction. And yeah, I guess if you can if you can get the prices, uh, you know, elevated as Disney has, uh, it's probably you know going to help. I, I don't know. Is this the fourth reopening trade? I think it might be. <laughs> well, they, uh, I can't they keep, keep track necessarily. At us. <laughs> uh, but yeah, no, exactly. It's sort of like uh, you know the gift that keeps giving. It was kind of like you know in the past cycle where we'd have like you know a peripheral sovereign debt scare, and it would kind of put a good fright into the market and revalue things and reset expectations. And then oh, we saved the world again. Yeah. As to your point, Morgan, about the consumer. Uh, everyone's sort of chatting about a tapestry today. Yes. A big top line beat. Coach up 24. Cade Spade up 33. Um, you know, we got great numbers at LVMH a few days ago. One reason the goose missed today was a little bit strange. Um, uh, they missed by five cents and they guide lower than expected traffic, mostly in Asia Pacific and Europe. Uh, so we are looking for not just in the U.S., but the high end consumer. Uh, we are counting on them all around the world. Oh, it's such a key point. It is. It's kind of a tale of two apparel makers this morning, even in the luxury end of the market, which has, you know, continued to, to see that rebound and is resilient. And I would expect, uh, based on the commentary we get from so many experts on our air, continues to be resilient. I mean, that goes back to MGM in some ways, too, right? The fact that you're continuing to see uh, so much weakness in Macau as well. And the companies that are exposed to Asia, given everything in China, for example, with a zero COVID policy, um, continue to be maybe hampered or hindered the hardest amid all of these supply chain currents and, and how it's also just affecting those local markets, Mike. Yeah, uh, no doubt about it. I would say just to look elsewhere in terms of consumer cyclical stuff, uh, you're getting a pretty standard decline in the home builders this morning. So mm -hmm. that's been one of those deals where, you know, the, the typical rate hiking playbook says rate sensitive, um, you know, cyclicals are the ones that that will get hurt. Now, home builders as a group have managed to kind of hold the line a little bit. They haven't broken down. Obviously, supply demand looks good. Affordability getting a little questionable. Uh, and that's why there's the sensitivity there. But it is, uh, you know, definitely the reflex move this morning is to uh, is to take some out. If you look at D.R. Horton down, you know, two and a half percent and Lennar as well. You know, uh, normally on a day like this, you would see a move to defensives. And, and I guess we are. Um, but Kellogg today, 83 cents beats by four cents. Revenues in line, organic up five, almost double, actually more than double expectations. All of the supply chain conversation, Mike, uh, the labor strife, 
uh, is sort of getting washed away in an environment where you're looking for uh, more revenue stability, I guess. Yeah, for sure. Um, you know, the stock has definitely had a, a choppy run, and, and the food companies within Consumer Staples have really been very hit or miss. Uh, they don't seem to be as, as able to kind of pass along cost increases as seamlessly. You know, if you remember, there was even a talk back in the pandemic of the, you know, cereal renaissance. And so you had a little bit of maybe some give back there if we have any uh, reopening effect. But yeah, pretty reassuring numbers. Uh, and I do think that, um, you know, it, it follows along the lines of, uh, you know, of some of the other ones that say, that, you know, we have this under control, uh, even if, uh, and, and top line really helps uh, helps to cover up a lot. I think that's something very different than we got used to in previous Fed tightening cycles where we were kind of worried about going from 2% real growth down to zero, and now it's we came into the year relatively hot. And, uh, and the question is how much do we revert? As we said earlier, uh, Disney is definitely helping the Dow avoid a more pronounced decline. Breath on the NDX, not so hot. Only about half a dozen names are in the green. Let's get to Bob Bassani. Hey, Bob. Morning, guys. Uh, and uh, we are already off our lows on the Russell, on the S&P, and also on the Dow Jones Industrial Average. It's not a great open. Three to one, declining to advancing stocks. A bit of a sort of a knee-jerk reaction here. If you take a look at the sectors, banks doing a little bit better at the open. Energy stocks uh, a little bit better at the open. Uh, industrial slightly down. And when I say knee-jerk, there's tech, uh, and not not just speculative tech, but big cap tech. You know, I put up some of the names here. You can see the usual suspects, uh, some of the uh, semiconductor capital equipment names like LAM Research, some of the mega cap semis like uh, NVIDIA, uh, and then you just get big cap in general, all down in the area of 1%. One guy messaged me, said the usual knee-jerk reaction here. And again, I think that's a very good point. The debate is when inflation is peaking. No, nobody expects inflation to peak in January. The question is is when is it going to peak, February, March, April? I want to just show you a comment that Maersk made. Maersk is one of the biggest ocean shippers in the world. They control about 20% of the ocean shipping volume. So they came out with their report today. They said they expect supply chain disruptions to persist into Q2. That means into June. But they said after that, normalization in ocean shipping, normalization meaning things are going to get back to normal, they're expecting it in the second half of the year. That's a very important comment from a company that controls 20% of the ocean shipping uh, in the world. Merstock, by the way, has been holding up very well on exactly the expectations of the reopening story. And I think that's where everybody needs to look. On the earnings situation, we're getting tail ends of a lot of these earnings today. Uh, everyone knows that the earnings revisions uh, are not as strong as they were. What matters is the economy is still strong. And you can see that in Coca-Cola, a lot of reopening stories. Their volumes were up 9%. Companies said the fourth quarter marked the first quarter in which away from home volume was ahead of 2019. Strength in at-home channels also continued. What, there's the reopening story. They're telling you people are going out a lot more. Coke's, of course, has been a great performer uh, in the last month. It was a historic high uh, in the last day or two, as you can see, also up again today. As for tech earnings, we all know they got hit very badly. We had some real messes in speculative tech stocks, but Uber today, excellent report. We had all these problems with not being able to get drivers, and yet the mobility unit did very, very well. Twilio, Twitter, Datadog, they were all a disaster a little while ago. Twilio, uh, Twilio was down dramatically, was down, no, 30% or so. Twitter, Datadog, they all got hit badly as well. And they've been bouncing uh, in the last couple of weeks. And these earnings reports, for them, generally are very reassuring, better than people thought. Finally, if you take a look at uh, uh, some of the other big companies, Tapestry and Sonos, 
Uh, they had great numbers as well. Tapestry raised their full year guidance. They talked about rising demand there. There's the reopening story. And Sonos said the same thing, demand remains strong. It's the reopening story. Carl, back to you. Bob, thanks so much, uh, Bob Pisani. When we come back, former SEC Chair Jay Clayton with his take on banning members of Congress from trading stocks. Before we go to break, of course, let's check in on, in on bonds uh, on a morning in which the 10-year yield did touch 2%, just uh, one basis point shy right now, as the two-year is about one basis point shy of one and a half, and the Dow's off the initial lows, down 148. Gaining momentum in the House to ban members of Congress from trading individual stocks. Some in the Senate raising some early red flags, arguing that some proposals go too far or might be too difficult to implement. Joining us this morning is Jay Clayton, former SEC chair and CNBC contributor. Jay, good morning. It's great to see you. Great to see you, too. Thanks. Thanks for having me on. Fascinating to hear the speaker's uh, views on this and how they've evolved really in a short period of time. I guess, what have you seen so far that's been proposed that you either like or don't like? Well, Carl, what I've seen so far is um, what I would say is, I don't mean to be critical because uh, this, is, this is an issue where sound bites mean a lot, but I, I've seen a lot of very blunt discussion on what is a multifaceted issue. And, and, and a very important one. And um, it's getting better. The debate is getting better because people are recognizing uh, the many sides to this. And if you don't mind, I'll just, I'll just lay out four. Sure. Which is any kind, of, any kind of program here, you have to have fairness. We don't want people taking advantage of information that they gain through their public service. Absolutely against the law, et cetera. Um, you want confidence. You want the American people to have confidence that if we have those rules, they're being enforced. Then what you want to have is our people in government to be invested alongside the American people. We don't want them excluded from the market. In our country, you're saving for your own retirement. We have you know, 300 million people who someday, one way or another, are gonna rely on market performance to pay for their retirement. You, we want our elected representatives to be sitting alongside them. And then last, we don't want rules that exclude people from serving in government. And this is particularly important. We've seen over the last few years just how important it is to have private sector up-to-date expertise enter the government. Now, if you'll bear with me, um, and we see this from both sides of the aisle, this should, not be a, this should not be a partisan issue. Just two people who are on your program often, Scott Gottlieb, Gina Raimondo. When they speak, they have that private sector, public sector expertise, and they tie it all together. We need that in a number of areas. Yeah, oh, I see your point in, in, in not closing the door to, to all talent and public service. Some of this hits close to home for us in financial media. We're not allowed to trade mm -hmm. individual securities. I wonder, do you think it's about individual securities or holding periods or just sheer disclosure or some combination of all of the above? You make a terrific point as we go through this, and look, it was 10 years ago that the Stock Act was passed. It's time for it to be updated. But we're not painting on a blank canvas. We have people in the, in the media industry, financial services industry, people who run companies. There are restrictions, disclosures, prophylactics that work. Your, your point around a ban versus other, what I would say is prophylactic measures is a very good one. I think what, what we want is we don't want people trading but we want to allow people to invest. 
and say, for example, on single stocks, if you're a, a senior executive in a company, you have essentially mandatory holding periods for single stock of your company. Um, Jay Powell uh, identified other prophylactics, which is, let's say you want to enter into XYZ company. Um, have a 10-day delay from when you make that decision to when the trade is actually executed. So it doesn't, it prevents the sort of market timing, immediate trading that people are worried about. Those types of things can be done. Uh, discretionary accounts. Sometimes people mix up discretionary accounts and blind trusts. Those types of things can be done. I, I'm not in favor of an outright ban, but I am in favor of transparency and some of these prophylactic measures. Yeah, and I'm sure both of those things would go a very long way. Just out of curiosity, Jay, how about family members, husbands and wives, for example? How should they factor into this discussion? Because we do know that there have been a number of lawmakers where even if they haven't been actively engaged in trading over the years, they've had family members who have been. Look, this is a thorny issue and, and in many ways, including for some of you and me, it's a personal issue. Um, my, my spouse was a professional before I went into government and we determined that uh, she should actually leave her job. I don't think that that should apply in many government jobs, including in Congress. We can't ask people who are giving up their careers to come into Congress and serve to ask their spouse to make a sacrifice of giving up their career. There, there are ways forward, whether it's um, discretionary accounts, clearance with ethics, ethics officers and the like. And here's where I think Congress is different from a place like the SEC or the Fed. Uh, Jay, uh, while we have you, wondering what your thoughts are on some of the floated proposals that uh, your successor, Chair Gensler, put out there yesterday about enhanced disclosures from private funds and hedge funds uh, and maybe some market structure changes that might uh, you know, reduce the delays uh, in execution uh, and things like that. Um, on, on the market structure changes, I, I am I am all for um, shortening the settlement cycle um, and using the technology that we have today uh, to improve market function. Um, I think there, I think the commission is doing a great job pushing that forward, it, not just uh, in the equity market but also in the fixed income and treasury market. It, it's it's overdue. It was, it was on our agenda. I'm very pleased to see it being carried through. Um, on, on the private fund disclosure uh, and some of these other measures, I need to study them more. You know, one thing about information and the government that I firmly believe is that the government should not be asking for information unless there's a reasonable expectation that they're going to use it, particularly sensitive information. So I think I, think I need to look at that one more closely to have uh, a reaction. Jay, uh, it's not, we're not done talking about it. It is a midterm year. I imagine we'll be hearing a lot more in the coming months. Uh, appreciate your guidance. Good to see you. Jay Clayton. Hey, thanks a lot. Take a look at the markets here as the Dow, which was down 288 at the open, now down 77. And the NASDAQ has cut its one or almost 2% decline more than in half. Back in a moment. This was another exceptional performance for Mattel. We continue to outpace the industry and gain share globally for the second consecutive year. And in every measured market, we had the highest annual growth rate in decades with double free cash flow and more than double earning per share. 
That was the CEO of Mattel earlier this morning on Squawk Box. Uh, quarterly beat, sending the stock sharply higher. Uh, 53 cents, crushes 32. Revenue up 11. Morgan and the guide's good, too. Yeah, 52-week high, new 52-week high for the stock. Talk about a turnaround. 18% growth in Barbie, which until not that long ago was really the thing that was sinking this stock. That offset declines for Hot Wheels and Fisher Price, which goes back to something we were talking about earlier in the hour. Suffered some factory and retail closures in Asia, but across the board, strong growth expected for this year. Yeah, I was going to say, you know, years ago, I, I talked to a previous CEO of Mattel who said play patterns around the world are all the same for little kids. And so he's emphasizing the emerging markets growth, uh, which suggests that, uh, you know, there's traction. There. You've been listening to the opening hour of CNBC's Squawk on the Street. 